So we're going to read the, uh, the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, if you want to turn in your Bibles, Exodus 21 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice that's a promise to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And this, notice, is the only commandment with uh, a command to remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Think about this. You shall not commit adultery makes no sense if God hasn't already ordained marriage. So there's some things that as you read the commandments that we don't think about. But obviously, there's marriage. You shall not steal. That reminds us that we have personal property. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So that's the Old Testament reading for this morning. It's, uh, it ties into what I'm going to speak about, um, which is the law of God. Um, Tim has been doing a, an amazing job of going through Romans, and as if you've been here, kind of just to refresh, he's talked a lot about the law of God. Um, one of the titles I thought about for this sermon was The Great Reset. We hear a lot about that in the media, but uh, I think as, you, as we go through this, you'll realize what I'm referring to as the Great Reset. It's not what the world thinks it is. So in context, as we've been working our way through Romans, it's become abundantly clear that we're justified by faith and not by our works. We're justified by putting our trust and hope in Christ and his perfect work. We've also been reminded that there is not only one way, there's only one way to be saved. Not the law for the Jews or faith for the Gentiles. This is, I think, a fundamental confusion that a lot of Christians have have been basically taught or misunderstood is that the Old Testament and the law is for the Jews and they're to keep the law and that's how they're saved. And then the New Testament is for Gentiles and, and it's by faith. And you'll see as we go through here, think about that. That is a misunderstanding at best. It has always been about the heart. Even in the Old Testament, it was very clear. If we look at Deuteronomy 10 verse six, it says, 
circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So it's talking about, you know, there was a physical mark, but it's talking about the most important is the heart. And this is, this goes, this is the continuity of scripture is talking about the heart before God. So the question is, so what place does the law of God have in our lives? What standard are we to live by? How do we know what's right or wrong? Has God's law been made void and irrelevant as a rule and a standard for living a holy life? Let's look at what God's word has to say about that. We go to Leviticus 19, verses 2 and 3. It says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. And then in 1 Peter 14, verse, 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, it says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you to be holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Matthew Henry is one of my favorite commentators, and he comments on this passage, and he says, The written word of God is the surest rule of all Christians' life. And by this rule, we are commanded to be holy in every way. The Old Testament commands us, the Old Testament commands are to be studied and obeyed in the times of the New Testament. The apostle, by virtue of a command delivered several times by Moses, requires holiness in all Christians. So we're going to try to address kind of our focus on three questions. What is the promise regarding the law of God in our lives? Where did the law of God start? And how does the law of God apply to you, to us, to me? By God's grace, we'll, uh, and by his Holy Spirit, we'll be able to understand this. So, what is the promise resulting or living according to the law of God? And we're going to get into the definition of that because there's some misunderstanding of when I say the law of God, people think different things. But Psalm 119 is, uh, is an amazing um, chapter in the Bible. It's actually, uh, and it starts out in the first three verses and it sets it very clear. It says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. So it's repeated a number of times in that, those three verses. Blessing is the promise attached to keeping the law of God. And so many of us think of it in a negative way, as if the law of God is a punitive punishment. But God's word is very clear. It's a blessing. And that's why Psalm 119 goes on and on and talks about this. Um, I was listening to uh, a podcast by Doug Wilson recently. And uh, it just actually, I think it was on Wednesday. And if you don't know him, he's, he's excellent. Uh, check him out. But um, actually, Blair introduced me to him. And I'm uh, very thankful for that. But basically, he talks about the Deuteron Deuteronomic blessings. So one of the misunderstandings is, in the Old Testament, you know, we hear about 
the, uh, the Israelites being blessed, you know, if they keep the law of God, the material blessings such as money, land, good crops, many children, victory over our enemies. And, you know, this is they're, they're basically clearly promised in the Old Testament, but not true for New Testament believers. This is a misunderstanding is that there is no monetary or physical blessing by keeping the law of God. And that's not what the New Testament and all of the Bible clearly tells us. Our spiritual blessings are promised. Oh, sorry, only spiritual blessings are promises and misunderstanding. He goes on clearly to show this is not true. I'm not going to go into details of how he does that, but check it out. I can send you the link. I highly recommend it. The law of God is the only standard for life for everyone. Another misunderstanding is that the law of God only applies to believers. It has no place in an unbeliever's life. But it's very confusing if you think about that. So that means there's, there's more than one standard. Everybody will answer to God's standard. Everybody, if God, when God holds us accountable, it's to his standard, not to my standard, not to the standard that's in Ontario or in Canada. So it does apply to everyone. So what other standard is there if, if there isn't just God's standard? And this is the way we kind of have to think as we ask these questions. And then, as I said earlier, what do we mean by law? What do we mean by that? Um, Wilhelm A. Bracco, in a book that I, I have called uh, Christian's Reasonable Service, provides a great definition of what the law is. In summary, the law is a known and binding rule of conduct. It's what we do. It's how we live. And the word law is used a number of different ways in the Bible. Um, I'll just list a few of them. The law of nature is referred to. We've already looked at that in Romans 2, 14 and 15. The corruption of the human nature, or as it talks about warring within us, the law of sin warring against the law of God in Romans 7. This is one of my preferred understandings is the entire word of God is the law of God. Psalms 19, 7 to 8. The book of Moses is referred to the law of God in Luke 24, 44. And then the, the gospel is also referred to the law of God in, in uh, Romans 3, 27 and Isaiah 2, 3. Then, then there's the civil law um, is referred to in John 19, the ceremonial law in Hebrews 10, and then the moral law, which most of us really kind of, if we, we kind of refer to it or, or that's what brings to mind is the moral law or the Ten Commandments, which I read in Matthew 22, and it's 36 to 38. And it's just really a summary of God's law. So in summary, the law is the rule of life given to man by God, the only lawgiver to govern and disposition of his, and the dispositions of his heart, thoughts, words, and conduct. Many say that Jesus never really spoke about the law. I find this really confusing, as we'll see in the passages I'm going to read. In Matthew 5, well, we, we really see that Jesus took the law of God extremely seriously. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is Jesus speaking. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, 
will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was at this point speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees who were at that point imposing their law, their traditions, on the people of Israel and the people around them, not God's law. And then in Matthew 22, Jesus responds again to the religious experts of the day. And this is a very powerful piece. It says, teachers, this person asked Jesus, he calls him a teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Remember, at this point when Jesus is saying this, the believers at that point did not have the full word of God. They had the Old Testament. And here Jesus very succinctly summarizes the first four commandments in the statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And then he summarizes the last six commandments in the simple statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18. So how you can come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't talk about the law of God and didn't really take it very seriously is very confusing at best. And then in 1 John 2, we read from 1 to 6, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if any of you does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I do not know him, but does, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. So we can see as Jesus specifically talks about the Ten Commandments and the commandments there. And about if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. God's law is a law of liberty and of freedom. One of the things in our culture right now, we talk a lot about freedom, but with freedom comes responsibility. And uh, a lot of our culture, unfortunately, has given up all the responsibility to what they believe is their savior, the state. Um, and they haven't really taken that. We, Tim has talked about the sphere of responsibility. We have family, we have our own personal responsibility, we have family, we have the church, and we have the state. But in James 1.25, talks about the law of liberty and freedom but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer but forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing so it goes talking about obeying and doing there's two terms that we're going to talk about the next few minutes that maybe help you, you might have heard them before there's one called 
theonomy and autonomy. I'm going to define those for you. Theonomy comes from the word theos, which is just God, and nomos, which is law. And that's God's law. Every Christian, in some sense, should be a a theonomist in principle, which just means that they believe that they should do what God requires them to do. This is not where the debate generally is about the law of God. The disagreement tends to focus on what did God actually tell us and how we should live. And the other real big one is the continuity in scripture and the discontinuity. So, as I said, if if you've been taught that the Old Testament is for the Jews and the New Testament is for the rest of us, that's a discontinuity. Where the Bible is, it builds on every word of God throughout the entire word of scripture. And that's where a lot of the confusion comes. So this is, the subject is basically, we're talking about is hermeneutics, which is the interpretation of scripture. Um... I want to recommend another podcast by uh, Dr. Joe Boot, which Tim has referred to and we've talked a lot about at the Ezra Institute. He does this really wonderful thing called uh, Worldview Wednesdays. And uh, he talked in in this last week, which is very interesting timing for me, he talked about theonomy and he did a a excellent sort of um, talk on what is theonomy. But basically, theonomy is is God's law, is living by God's law. Now, what is autonomy? Autonomy is man's self-law, which is referred to sometimes. You'll hear people talk about natural law. But autonomy is basically man's law. And to quote from Rashduni's commentary on Deuteronomy, natural law is usually invoked to evade God's law, or to basically avoid God's law, while having some transcendental reference. So they kind of refer to some sort of power, not specifically God. The specifics of natural law cannot be agreed upon. There's no given body of natural law. There's no absolute good or evil, right or wrong. Thus, the alternative to God and his law is inevitable, a humanistic law and world order. And ultimately, as we see in the history of the world, Autonomy, and we're going to get into this, the source of God's law, is it leads to anarchy and basically totalitarianism. That's where it goes. A lot of um, the evangelical community or just people in general that talk about God's law, they tend to divide it up into three basic categories. I don't necessarily think this is helpful, but maybe to some it is. The Bible doesn't do this, but it does, you know, so they refer to the moral law, which we, most people know as the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law, which is a lot of the, to do with the ceremonies in the Bible, and then the judicial or civil law, which is the case law, like and how in, in, in criminal law. So all the law is useful, and this is why I don't like to do that because all the law, all the all the word of God is useful. None of it is is not useful, and we know that from Second Timothy three sixteen. 17 it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work so that doesn't it that includes every word of God many professional Christians believe that none of the law of God um, has a place in their lives. This is, this is, I'm just, I'm speaking from my experience and talking to people. Some, some have that sort of extreme view that 
There's no place for the law of God in my life. Some believe that the moral laws summarized in the Ten Commandments do have some place in a, in a so-called New, New Testament believer's life. Others claim that only some of the moral law, or basically nine of the Ten Commandments, have a place in their lives. But the Fourth Commandment, they really get stuck on for some reason. It's the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath. Those are the kind of three groups that I've run into, maybe you've run into others, and their, their view on the law of God. Um, even when Moses gave the law to Israel, it was so that they could be an example to all the nations so they could also be blessed by keeping it. And that's in Isaiah 49, we read, it says, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So even the Old Testament clearly says the children of Israel to, were to be, it was like, you know, when you teach your kids to be a, uh, you know, responsible and to, to be respectful and they're there to be, you know, kind of a reflection of you to others. Well, God was teaching the children of Israel his law so they could be a reflection to recommend and encourage others to do the same, not to just be in isolation and do this just for themselves. On a historical note, we see this uh, in some ways coming through our history. So with Britain, the common law in England was based on Deuteronomy by King Alfred the Great in seven, 786 AD. So that's, you know, kind of going back there, but that's what they call to the English common law. And it was prefixed with the 10 commandments of Moses and incorporate the rules of life from the Mosaic code and the Christian code of ethics. So they were actually encoded in what was called the common law back that far. So the principle is you look at, there's, this is the principle that we should use with the law of God. You look at the law and you apply the principles to other situations that vary. So obviously God's law or what we call case laws don't deal with every single instance that we will run into in our lives. But the principles are there. The other fundamental thing to remember is that sin is called lawlessness in the Bible. In 1 John 3, it says, everyone who practice, who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then it makes this statement, sin is lawlessness. So the law was never meant to, meet, to be the means of life. As we've been told, as we've studied in Romans, it is the way of life. And, and it, we're commanded to walk in it. So we don't get life from the beginning or you know, new life in Christ by the law of God. But it is how we are to live. This is another interesting um, example is, you know, we, we think of the law, if you think of it as a mirror, um, and we look into the, the, the mirror of God's law, and we see ourselves, it convicts us of our sin. You would never think of trying to wash yourself with a mirror, right? It's not going to clean you. Um, but a mirror will tell you that you're dirty. You can't be made clear, clean by a mirror. It is a measuring rod for the process of sanctification. We've talked a lot about justification in Romans. Now we're, we're really, what I'm talking about in general is, is a process of sanctification. How God takes us and redeems us and then teaches us as we grow in our Christian walk. No, we were given a new covenant in Christ's blood in the New Testament. That's very clear. 
But there's nothing that says we're given a new law. A lot of people will refer to, you know, Jesus's law. But there's nothing in scripture that talks about that. All we hear is Jesus reinforcing the existing law of God. Because he is God. What we do see, though, is a change in the priesthood and the location of the law. Interesting enough, now it's written on our hearts. In Jeremiah 31, 33, this is foretold. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declaring the, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So in summary, if we're not using God's word and his law as your standard for your life, you will use man's law. There are only two options. There's not a multitude of options. It's, I always quote Bob Dylan. Carol's not a fan of him. I, I kind of like some of his music, but he says you're going to serve somebody. It's going to be God or the devil. You're going to serve somebody. You're either going to serve man or you're going to serve God. You're either going to use man's law, which is really undefined. It's rebellion. Or you're going to serve God's law, which is perfect. The law of God is the practical program for the reign of God in your life. Man's problems cannot be solved by humanistic concepts or political progress from the left or from the right, which we hear a lot of today, but only theologically by a return to Christ and his biblical law. So we tackle kind of that's, uh, you know, what is the law and what's the promise? Now we're going to look at where did it begin? You know, where did God, did God's law start on Sinai as and was given to Moses in the Ten Commandments? A common misunderstanding is that the law of God was first given by Moses to the children of Israel. The law was present from the very beginning. We go to Genesis 1.26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to, it's, it's bizarre, but I tend to always think when I talk about being created in the image of God is just a physical thing which is kind of strange. I mean, Jesus had a body, but God, you know, the father doesn't. But it's talking about creating us in God's image. And, you know, God's image is, is much more than physical. God's divine nature is revealed in his law. So when we're created in God's image, we're created like God in a, in a way that God is defined by his law. So that starts up right at the very beginning. And then in Genesis 2, verse 6, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, so, you know, it's like we think there's no commands from God, um, but this is right at the beginning. He commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Note there's both a positive and a negative command there. That you shall live if you if you um, don't eat of it, but if you do, you'll die. Then we read about the fall and the dismissing of God's law right at the very beginning. This is where we went wrong. It's always been about this. In Genesis 3, 1 to 6, it says, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, shall you not eat of any tree in the garden? So this is right at the very beginning. We see the devil, what is he doing? He's questioning God's authority and his law right from the beginning. He's saying, did God actually say? It's a subtle way, but he actually completely dis, you know, disregards God's law and he's questioning it. He's, he's, instead of saying to Eve and Adam, disobey God, he's enticing them to just think, oh, did God actually say, is God really the authority or are you? God's word teaches us that all human beings know the word, the, know the work of God's law, even though we may not be conscious of all its precepts. They recognize by created instinct the work of God's law written on our hearts. Their conscience bearing witness to this reality. That's Romans 2, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the specific written law of God. They show what the work of the, the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, on, them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So even though people know God's law, they just don't obey it. Everyone sees God's attributes and his eternal power in creation. And then turns and worships the creator or worships the creature or themselves. So ultimately, this is the sin of mankind from the beginning. Romans 1.20, it says, For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So no one's going to stand before God at the end and say, I didn't know. I didn't have your law. I didn't understand it. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So there's no neutrality with God in his law. You either hate it or you love it. Mankind in its fallen nature hates God and his law. The lie of natural law is that it's neutral, that we can kind of be somehow neutral. We're born in sin. We're not neutral right out of the gate. And then we add to our sin by continually sinning. This is, a, this is relative, you know, this is the term that our culture loves is, is relativism or pluralism. Relativism is right and wrong are subjective and uh, they're not objective. So they're basically what's right for you is right. What's right for me is right. That's the whole term of relativism being subjective. And pluralism basically is just, there's no consistent means or approach to the truth. There's many ways to the truth. And God's word tells us the opposite in both cases. I'm going to recommend two, two documents um, that I found very helpful in my life. One is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's an excellent resource that summarizes what I'm trying to explain. Um, it was actually drafted in 1643 by the Westminster Assembly. There was like over 70 theologians from across the spectrum that sat for years. It was completed. So it started in 1940, uh, 1643 and ended in 1646. And it was actually presented to Parliament. It was actually Parliament that asked them to do this. 
in uh, June 1648. But it, it tackles the law of God in chapter 19, and it covers it in seven sections, which I which I'm not going to go through them all. They're lengthy, but they're, I'll just kind of give you a taste for what, they're, what they are. Um, in this first section, it says, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his prosperity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. And then it lists all the scripture references to that, Genesis, Romans, Galatians, Ecclesiastics, and Job. So it's really good because it gives you this summary statement that all those scriptures teach. Um, that's the, the first section. The second section talks about more about the law of being a perfect rule for righteousness. Um, and then like section five, as I've already mentioned about the moral law doth for every bind all. So it's, it's not just for, you know, say the Jews um, as well, justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that, and, and this is kind of, I know there's vows and these, there's a version. I'm sorry. I'm reading from the version. There is a version that's just in modern English. It's easy to read. So you'll, you can find that the last section seven, it says, neither are the forementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that, what, that freely and cheerfully, which is the will God revealed in the law. So we've already kind of touched on this, but the last question is, you know, who does it apply to? Who does God's law apply to? I'm going to read a quote from John Knox. Most of you maybe know of John Knox back in the 1500s, 1558. He addressed the nobles of the land in Scotland. And this is what he said. For it is a thing more certain that whatsoever God requireth of the civil magistrate, and that's just a term for the government at the time, the civil magistrate in Israel or Judah concerning the observation of true religion during the time of the law. The same doth he require of all lawful magistrates professing Christ Jesus in the time of the gospel. So he's saying it applied to, you know, it's kind of interesting that we would think what applied to Israel, which God was trying, it was blessing, wouldn't be good for us. That's a fundamental kind of illogical thing to think. It says, so uh, in the time of the gospel, as the Holy Ghost had taught him by the mouth of David saying in Psalm 2, be ye learned, you that judge the earth, kiss the sun, lest the Lord wax angry and that you perish from the way. This admonition did not, ex did not extend to judges under the law only, but extended to those, to everyone. So we can see, um, this is something that is, is not in our current culture. Basically, Christians have told, have told a lot of unbelievers and even their, their MPPs or their, their MPs that, you know, they don't even talk to them about the law of God as a standard for life. I'm sure most of us have not even referred to that when we're talking to people. Um, and how do we expect God's law to be upheld if the church isn't, first of all, believing it and holding on to it and then recommending it in, in, in whatever profession we're in? 
So kind of a, an application is, as Christians, the law of God must be the foundation for our worldview. And our worldview is just a, a way that we live, the way we understand everything around us. So it needs to be that, that foundation and shape every area of our lives. We should take every opportunity to understand it and apply it. And, and doing this is hard work. It's not easy. It's not just like, you know, there's not every area in our lives is clearly delineated in God's word. We have to understand the principles of God's word and pray about it and then look to, to implement it. Unfortunately, my experience as a Christian, and I include myself in this, is we take a clear objective commandment, like let's say the fourth commandment about keeping the Lord's day. Instead of studying it and trying to properly apply it in our lives, we dismiss it. Or worse, we determine that it's not required and miss the blessing of obeying it. The Westminster uh, Confession I mentioned earlier, but it also contains what's called the longer catechism or the shorter catechism. And it kind of gets into more sort of bite-sized um, statements on the, the God's law. So I, I highly recommend that too. Um, and I'll just look at the one, as I just mentioned, the Sabbath day. So it, it talks about, this is question 115 in the longer catechism, is what is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Um, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner with your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And the way that the confession, the catechism works is it asks questions and then it answers them. So the next question is, what is required of the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requires that all people sanctify and keep holy to God such set times as he has appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ and the first day of the week, which is Sunday, for us ever since. So continue to the end of the world. The first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath and the new covenant is called the Lord's Day. So it's just a helpful thing. I recommend to go and look at this. If you have questions or concerns, definitely you can come to the elders. But this is a great place to start. These are men that study this in depth and struggle with it and then capsulize the answers and summarize them so you can read them and, and look at the, the scripture texts. So it goes on for quite a while. Uh, there's question basically 19 to 20, 21 on, on just on the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's rightly studying and applying God's word. Remember, if the law is no longer binding, then there's no longer any sin. That's the kind of logic you have to think through. If there is no law of God, if it's not binding to us, then there's no longer sin. And if there's no longer any sin, who needs salvation? Because remember, our definition is sin is lawlessness. So unless the word of God is in place under the law, unless the whole world is placed under the law of God, we don't need the cross. We don't need salvation because there is no such thing as sin because that's what, how God defines what sin is. 
We are to love Christ, love his law, and keep his commandments. So in conclusion, I always like this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 13 to 14. And this is, remember, this is the, the wisest man, this is King Solomon that ever lived, other than Christ. And he summarizes it this way. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment. And remember, what is he going to use to judge every deed? He's going to use his, his law. To bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the summary statement that the wisest man made at the end of his life. 